Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Adam B. Lerner about his book titled From the Ashes of History, Collective Trauma and the Making of International Politics, which has just come out in 2022 from Oxford University Press. This is a really interesting book I found that examines how collective trauma is actually something that we probably don't think about when it comes to international politics. But this book makes an incredibly persuasive case that we really should think about the impact of trauma and collective trauma when we try and understand what's happening in the world of either individual countries, foreign policies, in the creation of international institutions like the United Nations, um, and just generally in the study of international relations. Uh, This is a really interesting book, I think, for lots of different strands of scholarship. Um, So I'm really pleased to welcome you, Adam, to the podcast to tell us all about it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? So, yeah, my name's Adam B. Lerner, um, and uh, I'm originally from Washington, D.C., though I now work in the U.K. Um, And I guess the story of how I decided to write this book is kind of a long one, and it gets uh, longer depending on where I choose to begin it. So I'll uh, start it back when I was an undergraduate, and I thought I was going to pursue a career in stand-up comedy. So I was an English major as an undergrad, and I was exposed um, in the English department at Cornell University, where I um, studied, to the work of Kathy Carruth, who's uh, someone that I cite quite a bit in the book, um, major trauma studies theorist. And I was uh, exposed to trauma studies literature. So I always thought that was interesting. Um, After I graduated college, I wanted to go pursue comedy, um, and I ended up getting this scholarship. Uh, called the Hen- uh, Henry Luce Scholarship, Henry Luce Scholars Program. And I went and worked for a magazine kind of like The New Yorker in India. It's called The Caravan. Uh, so I had this fantastic year working for this magazine. I ended up doing a lot more journalism than comedy. So I started to move towards journalism. Um, it was a magazine that published uh, fiction and uh, narrative journalism, all sorts of different stuff. So I did some reporting. And when I was there, uh, it was right before the 30th anniversary of the Bhopal disaster, which was uh, history's worst industrial accident. And I had a mentor at the magazine that I worked at named Hartosh Singhbal, who had started his career as a journalist working in Bhopal. So I had a number of really great coffee chats with him where he told me about the disaster. I learned about it. I found it really compelling and also something that was potentially a story that hasn't been told in the history of U.S.-India relations. Uh, And so I eventually, I went back to the U.S., I wrote a couple articles on the Bhopal disaster. And as I analyzed this very tragic incident that occurred in the 1980s, I started to uh, look for a larger lens to sort of place it in my understanding of U.S.-India relations. I did a minor in international relations um, when I was an undergraduate, and I decided to take on a PhD, um, sort of sitting at the intersection of political theory and international relations, where I would create this sort of larger lens for placing this episode of mass violence in the history of U.S.-India relations. So I wrote one article um, during my uh, the early years uh, of my PhD on 
the legacy of the Bhopal disaster in U.S.-India relations. I didn't really touch so much on trauma theory, but the project of my PhD was really building out this initial idea I had of using trauma studies to analyze um, foreign relations, international affairs um, in a broader context. So it took me a few years to to get this all together, maybe four or five years later. Um, eventually, the book, uh, yeah, the book came together, and I'm uh, glad to be be able to share it now. Amazing, and um, thank you for sharing that with us and kind of tracing the journey of a project. Um, I think that that's true of so many books, uh, but it's often hard to see that because you see the polished, finished product. And um, I think it's really helpful within the academic community to just kind of be reminded that actually you don't start with the polished, finished project and that where ideas come from may not be sort of um, a text you get assigned in class. Yeah. And I like to tell that story, too, because um, I've just started uh, I'm a senior lecturer at Royal Holloway, University of London now. And I've just started working more with PhD students and graduate students, postdocs. And oftentimes when I have conversations with them, uh, you'll hear stories where they think, oh, I spent a year going down the wrong path or, um, you know, I came to this late because I was doing X, Y, and Z. But actually this whole long story where I transitioned between basically three career fields and gave up on two of them, comedy and uh, journalism, and then went into academia, originally doing South Asian studies and then moving into international political theory. Um, That's kind of how this all came into being. And so those aren't really mistakes, but sort of stops along the path, I'd say. Um, So hopefully that's uh, helpful for some graduate students or uh, junior scholars that are listening to this. Exactly. A very helpful perspective um, to share. And we haven't even gotten into the meat of the book yet, Uh, but we will do that now. Don't worry. Um, And so obviously your book, well, I guess obviously to me, because I've gotten to read it, but the book um, kind of does two different types of things, right? Talks about trauma in the understanding of international relations um, generally. I suppose this is more the political theory part of your um, background. And then also looks at this um, in some specific case studies. Um, And so I want to kind of go a little bit into both. Obviously, we're not going to be able to go into all of the detail that the book does. Um, Listeners should definitely check out the book itself for that. But hopefully we can do a little bit of a high level tour of some of the main concepts. So to start off with, um, I would love to ask you about what you call in the book the, quote, paradox inherent in the socialization of trauma. Can you help us understand what you mean by this and how we can kind of work with this in our study? Absolutely. So um, in the book, I I expand on this, but this is an idea that comes up in the interdisciplinary field of trauma studies that I was originally exposed to um, as an English major. So traumatic events are incredibly salient experiences. Uh, They're typically uh, encounters with violence of some sort, and they can often be very shocking to the psyche, shocking to one's mental frameworks. There's a psychiatrist named Ronnie Janoff Bullman who has a theory um, called shattered assumptions theory. And she writes that um, traumatic experiences shatter people's assumptions about the world. They shatter the expectations they have of how the world works and their place in it. Um, so even though there are these incredibly salient experiences that can reshape the way that people see the world, they're also quite difficult to talk about. Um, trauma can take 
a significant amount of time to process, and uh, it can be quite difficult to put words on it. Even when one feels comfortable talking about trauma, trauma, excuse me, uh, oftentimes you can find that language has limits in describing traumatic experiences. Um, language, in order to be useful, has to be mutually intelligible. But traumatic experiences, almost by definition, operate at the extremes. They're ex- experiences of extreme violence. How do you communicate that to someone who hasn't uh, encountered it? Some of the work in trauma studies, and I'm thinking here about a fantastic book by a scholar named Elaine Scarry called The Body in Pain, talks about how extreme experiences of pain or um, uh, experiences of war, oftentimes we have to use figurative language to talk about them. We talk about, um, you know, white hot pain or um, uh, something uh, uh, feeling like... uh, I, I don't know, you're going to drown or something like that. Um, because the the words that we have to describe pain are often inadequate to talk about how extreme these experiences are. So that's really the paradox inherent to trauma. It's an incredibly salient experience, but when we go to communicate it, to convey it socially, we often encounter some difficulties. Hmm. Interesting. I think that that um, kind of jumps right into the heart of it and has some obvious implications for difficulty in studying trauma and its impact as being something that is difficult to articulate and therefore perhaps not always articulated at all. Um, So I want to kind of keep thinking about this for a moment. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about um, how this idea of the difficulty with communicating it, there's obviously a social element inherent to it because otherwise what are you communicating with to the air um so what's then the relationship between individual narratives of trauma and how those are communicated and understood but also then collective narratives of trauma where maybe you're talking to people who've been through the same thing yeah that's a great question um I think this relationship between individual and collective trauma is really at the center of the book. And it's one of the things I had to grapple with a lot as I was moving beyond um, some of the work on trauma in literary theory, for example, or historiography, and scaling it up to a subject like international relations, international politics. Um, How do our individual experiences of violence, particularly political violence, how do they translate to the way that we understand collective political life? So traumatic experiences, as I said, can be isolating and they can make individuals feel alone. But um, there's a a good deal of psychological and psychiatric literature, as well as other literatures, um, that point out that the process of working through trauma necessitates reengaging with communities. And um, it necessitates conveying narratives to other people, whether this is in a therapeutic environment with a, a therapist or with family, or even sometimes through political engagement. Further, as I said in response to the prior question, language itself is a social resource. So applying language to trauma itself entails a certain degree of making trauma socially intelligible. So this process of socialization is where collective trauma starts to emerge. When narratives of trauma are communicating to others, they can take on collective, are communicated to others they can take on collective significance. So a trauma that occurs to an individual can become traumatic for a family or for a larger community. Even though as we get farther and farther away from the initial experience, um, that initial experience might prove more difficult to narrate. 
Now, most of what the book deals with is mass violence, where traumatic experiences are felt by many individuals in different ways around the same time. However, when these traumas are narrated, there's a tendency to describe them as occurring to a collective. So I think this is probably easiest to understand by way of an example. Uh, The September 11th attacks, which occurred when I was a kid growing up in the U.S., um, they impacted thousands of people's lives directly and millions more indirectly. But when they were narrated politically, when political narratives of the attacks emerged, they were often transformed into an attack on the entire American nation or the American people. So what I argue in the book is that the same sort of reverberating out through communities that occurs when individuals socialize their trauma, um, that occurs on a larger scale in the case of collective trauma. And some of the same difficulties that we encounter with regards to representing and narrating trauma are actually just magnified. So for example, the disjuncture inherent in others communicating victims' trauma, so for example, um, putting words on on a trauma and conveying it to a therapist and having that therapist understand it, that disjuncture is magnified when it's political figures articulating trauma to um, a public audience or, in a say, in a foreign policy speech. Hmm. And what is the? How then does the collective narrative of the trauma kind of differ when it is? in those sorts of settings than if it's individualized. Right. So I think the key difference here is that the trauma is seen as occurring for a group, for, for the group rather than for a, a, large, um, a, a large number of individuals. So this is really when the group becomes a, a collective, um, if that uh, makes sense. And really narrative is vital to turning, transforming a large number of individuals into a collective, giving them a shared, uh, a sort of unity, a shared purpose. And then how does this collective trauma end up kind of, as you said, reverberating, but reverberating even further and reshaping international ideas and imaginaries and narratives? Yeah, well, so to be clear, I don't think collective trauma only shapes international imaginaries. However, I'm a scholar of international political theory, and I would argue that it's a particularly important, and in the book, I I call it a foundational force in international politics. So here, I don't want to reify the distinction between domestic and international politics. Um, And in my book, I make clear that I view this as much murkier than a lot of IR scholarship likes to acknowledge. But as I argue in the beginning of the book, the international arena is where a lot of history's most impactful instances of mass violence have taken place. Many international institutions, including the borders between states or international organizations and other international norms, they were forged in the fire of mass violence. I use the example of the United Nations in the first chapter, just as a sort of um, the the easiest example of an international organization. The United Nations wouldn't exist without the the mass violence of World War II. It it was created in response to World War II and the failure of the League of Nations. If we try to understand the United Nations without that history of violence and how that history of violence was processed, potentially processed by people who are quite distant from it, um, international statesmen and women who, um, you know, their elite status allowed them to avoid a lot of the the worst horrors of the war. Well, if we want to understand that organization, we need some sort of reference to that mass violence. If international politics, as Kenneth Waltz writes, takes place in the brooding shadow of violence, 
then we also need to think about how the aftermath of that violence manifests as collective trauma. Mass violence and collective trauma um, are sort of, they need to be understood together. So I've stated this in a fairly abstract way, um, but I think intuitively this idea will probably have more resonance with people um, if I, uh, you know, just in, in just an everyday conversation, I think it actually resonates with people. Potentially, um, it's my fault if I haven't articulated it cl- clearly enough. If you talk to people who are from states that have experienced terrible mass violence, whether it's countries in the global south that experienced violence under colonialism or um people from Rwanda who uh, grew up in the genocide or um, say people uh, from Israel, a state that was formed in the wake of the Holocaust, the legacy of this violence is often central to national identity and how their state operates in the world. So my book tries to provide a lens for analyzing that in greater depth. Um, And uh, hopefully this lens is flexible enough to appreciate the differences across different cases. Mm. So I'd love to, now that we kind of have that foundation, move to the cases to start to see what this looks like in some examples. Um, so could you tell us which case studies you've chosen and why you chose those particular ones? Yeah, that's a great question. So I should start by saying, and I think the way that I uh, describe collective trauma and or articulate this framework should make clear that Collective trauma is quite a complex phenomenon. It's not necessarily a unidimensional thing, but uh, but by theorizing it and developing this framework, we can develop certain historical sensitivities that will guide our empirical analysis. So for that reason, I didn't choose my cases according to small n case selection criteria, which typically involves um, viewing them as representative points along a distribution. So say, a distribution of amount of traumatization. And if you choose representative points, you, uh, in theory, um, uh, are able to prove the generalizability of the argument. As I state in the introduction, I think collective trauma is more complex than that sort of unidimensional distribution would allow. Um, Rather, I chose cases that I had prior knowledge of, where I had the language skills necessary for close discourse analysis of primary documents, and where I felt my theoretical framework would add value specifically to debates in um, empirical literatures that I had knowledge of. So the three cases I chose, um, the first comes from India um, following independence. So uh, it it looks at the development of um, understandings of the colonial encounter in uh, Indian foreign economic policymaking. And hopefully I'll get a chance to go a little bit more in depth into that. The second looks at the legacy of the Holocaust in Israel. And the third looks at the, specifically at the PTSD diagnosis and how it was used politically in the United States during the war on terror. So these are quite diverse cases. They're from three different continents and their diversity is suggestive of um, how transportable this this framework is, this concept of collective trauma and how useful it can be in different types of analysis. Um, And I think it's it's suggestive that collective trauma is an important force on larger scales and in other contexts. But ultimately, really, they serve as proof of concept. They tell us that collective trauma can be a useful framework. And in the conclusion of the book, I challenge future scholars to apply it in different ways and help refine it um, for future analysis. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I'd love to then turn to your case studies 
and uh, ask obviously about the, the first one about India and about the idea, um, this is very much a case of collective trauma and not just of one particular incident, but really of um, quite a few aspects of colonization. And you take us through, obviously, in way more detail than I'm certainly going to make you explain to us right this second. But could you tell us in brief how this collective trauma of colonization was foundational, you argue, in shaping India's post-independence um, economic system, understanding of itself within the international system? How did that relate? Um, yeah, thank you. So this case really built out of the research I did on the Bhopal disaster. Now, the, the case ends far before the Bhopal disaster occurs, but a lot of the ideas that I was wrestling with in my research on the Bhopal disaster, I traced them back in Indian history. Um, and this is sort of the result of that. So I should start by saying that, uh, you know, many in the Western Academy um, might not be familiar with the contours of the colonial encounter in India, but um, colonialism really impoverished India. And uh, one of the sort of core narratives that started to emerge in the late 19th century from the Indian nationalist movement was drain theory. This idea that the British were draining India's wealth and that uh, this drain of wealth was causing famines on the subcontinent, which were quite frequent during the colonial period. There hasn't actually been a major famine since um, Indian independence, but uh, but there were quite a few um, during the 19th and early 20th century. And then also that the idea that um, this drain of wealth led to a scarcity of resources that encouraged tensions between different groups, whether it was Muslim and Hindu, caste groups, language groups. So this narrative of drain theory started to develop in the Indian nationalist movement, uh, which, especially as the Indian National Congress formed in the late 19th century, um, but it really developed a lot in the last decade prior to independence. And part of this was due to historical circumstance. India, this, this um, trauma of colonization really accelerated during that period. There was, um, of course, soldiers being sent to war. Uh, the British government of India um, cracked down on any dissent and enacted uh, a number of repressive measures. And then uh, in 1943, as a result of the British redirecting um, food uh, food supplies away from India, there was really a horrific famine in Bengal, uh, the Bengal famine, uh, in which millions died. And, um, you know, even at the time, uh, most Indian leaders identified this as a result of the colonial encounter, as the result of foreign rule. And then um, after the war, as India was uh, getting ready for independence, the British um, decided to partition the subcontinent um, due to disagreements between the Muslim League and the Indian National Congress. And the the partition itself resulted in uh, waves of mass violence across, uh, particularly in Punjab and in the northwest of India. So really, it was a, a very difficult decade um, for India. So my discourse analysis of this period, I look at how political leaders understood these events. 
And what I find is that across the political spectrum, whether it's conservatives uh, from the big business community, socialists and Marxists uh, from the far left, uh, more consensus figures like Jawaharlal Nehru, who started as a socialist but became much more of a consensus figure after he became prime minister, or um, another group uh, of Gandhians, uh, M.K. Gandhi really had a unique political philosophy and, uh, and represented his own political faction. I find a consensus building among these different groups um, of how to understand the collective trauma as a product of colonialism. Um, uh, People like Gandhi, Nehru, Subhas Chandra Bose, they were particularly incensed over the liberal economic policies that were imposed by the British Empire. And they saw liberal economic policies as the source of the the drain on India's wealth. They thought that uh, the liberalism imposed under empire led to famine and communal violence. And this this consensus narrative, this consensus reading of trauma, uh, legitimized a logic that saw economic self-sufficiency or autarky as vital to India's security. And so after India's independence, uh, Nehru pioneered a development planning regime that was entirely internally oriented. It did not view trade as part of India's economic growth. So what I do in the chapter is I really demonstrate these links between narrations of the colonial encounter, narrations of the traumas experienced under the colonial encounter, and the logics of policymaking that developed after independence. Hmm. I think that's a really important one to understand that to show, I guess, that the usefulness of your framework, that collective trauma having an impact isn't just about something that happens like the day before a treaty is signed and therefore the treaty is changed or something like that. Yeah. But it's Absolutely. a process. Absolutely. And so I think here we can see, especially in the India case, that not only is it a lot of different individuals' experience of violence that's brought together in collective trauma, but a lot of different types of violence that are brought together in a narrative. So um, leaders like Gandhi and Nehru would offer political narratives that that essentially said that the Bengal famine, um, which was violence of a certain type, was had the, had the same cause, was had the same roots as say um, the communal violence experienced during partition, and so it sort of yoked together different. Uh, experience of violence that took place over a longer time frame into a sort of collective national narrative. Hmm. And this is really interesting to think about how things get brought together into national narratives and goes back to what you were saying earlier around the difference between maybe a therapist interpreting what someone's been through versus a politician um, and what those narratives can then do, I suppose. And so that kind of obviously, I mean, your book makes it very obvious to go from this case to the next one, talking about victimhood nationalism and particularly how we see that in Israel's early history as a state. Yeah, absolutely. So victimhood nationalism, I know the term victimhood oftentimes has a sort of pejorative connotation, but I really developed the term in dialogue with some other scholars uh, to mean a very specific type of trauma narrative. And that's a narrative that takes grievances from one trauma and projects it onto third parties. So hopefully that'll make more sense as I delve a little bit more deeply into this case. So Israel obviously was founded in the wake of the Holocaust. Um, And so collective trauma was really foundational in its birth. But despite that, uh, 
uh, trauma was not something that was openly discussed in, uh, especially by government officials um, immediately after Israeli independence. Um, there was a sort of uh, Zionist warrior ethos that was developed. Uh, they called it the Halutz um, mentality, the pioneering mentality. And really, um, Holocaust survivors, hundreds of thousands of them who moved to Israel, were kept in a sort of uh, public silence. They were converted into Israeli citizens. Many of them went on to fight in the Israeli military. Um, But that being said, as we discussed, uh, experiences of trauma are incredibly salient, especially when they occur due to international political events. Um, You know, they really do reshape worldviews. And so the government's opposition during the 1950s realized that this was something that they could used to attack uh, the, the the leading Maypai party, the Labour Party in Israel, led by David Ben-Gurion. In 1952, a particularly salient example of this comes with the Luxembourg Agreement. Ben-Gurion's government negotiates a reparations agreement with West Germany, and this outrages uh, many Israelis, um, many Holocaust survivors. And so this was you know, the the opposition to Ben-Gurion's government really gained a lot of steam calling them traitors for negotiating with West Germany. So by the time of Adolf Eichmann's capture, Adolf Eichmann was a a leader in Nazi Germany who escaped after the war, um, one of the people most responsible for organizing uh, the trains that sent um, Jews to the execution, the gas chambers. Um, He escapes to Argentina and uh, um, the Israeli secret services capture him in Argentina in this, uh, this covert mission, bring him back to Israel and put him on trial. And Ben-Gurion kind of realizes that there's this lingering uh, trauma in Israeli society, lingering collective trauma, and that uh, it poses a, a risk to his governing coalition, especially as his governing coalition had developed stronger ties with Germany. And what he seeks to do with the trial is to project grievances away from contemporary Germany, um, who had become a Western ally, he was trying to join the Western bloc, and project those grievances onto uh, Israel's Arab neighbors, the sort of core foes that Israel faced, um, that Israel has uh, uh, grappled with since its independence. So really, this chapter looks at how the trial, which was um, broadcast on radio and was recorded for television, covered by uh, hundreds of reporters from around the world, including very famously Hannah Arendt. Um, So the, the chapter really looks at how this trial, this very public trial, was used to divert um, grievances away from Germany, or at least contemporary Germany. Um, it, it, the trial focused on uh, on the efforts to which contemporary Germany had moved away from its Nazi history, talked about how um, Nazis had fled Germany and many of them to the Arab world, uh, a very highly debated point. Um, and it really tried to direct grievances towards um, Israel's Arab neighbors, who the trial portrayed as new incarnations of this existential threat to the Jewish community uh, that the Holocaust represented. So that's sort of how victimhood nationalism worked at the trial. It was a projecting of grievances away from uh, Nazi Germany, the entity responsible for the Holocaust, to Israel's Arab neighbors. And why was it effective? Because in some senses, that seems like a tricky jump. Absolutely. It is a, it's certainly a tricky uh, jump, but I think it was effective because there were a number of links that were developed. 
Um, so the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem is a sort of core link in this trial. He was a Palestinian leader under um, the British mandate who collaborated with the Nazis and um, was thought to uh, be a supporter of the Holocaust, um, was thought to have requested uh, that the Holocaust be extended to Jews living in the in Palestine. Um, now, there is a great deal of historical debate over the influence that the Grand Mufti had, but certainly at the trial, the Eichmann trial, he was, you know, his role was played up. Also, there were um, efforts to narrate the contemporary Zionism, the Jewish community living in Israel as a new incarnation of uh, of the um, Jewish community that lived in Europe and thus under the same sort of existential threats, this time from Israel's Arab neighbors. So a lot of this occurred with media attention. There were some careful links drawn in the trial. Um, and really it was a molding of trauma narratives to have their their salience and resonance be used for this projection. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that, because I think it it's a, quite an interesting example of how facts and perception and narratives can not always align with each other um, in ways that are actually quite helpful for understanding sort of how we end up in certain places that if we just looked at kind of the facts of who was involved here or how important was this or how many people fled from point A to point B, um, we would get confused trying to match that up to reality. So it's really, I think, a good example of why this kind of framework and thinking is helpful. Well, I appreciate that. And I also think that if we take a step back, this concept of victimhood nationalism is potentially potentially quite transportable in international politics. And that's because, um, you know, as we collectivize traumas, as we take something that happened to a certain group of people and expand it to having have to happen to a larger collective um, that spans a lot of, you know, generations potentially, we have to think about different types of projections that are occurring. So for example, um, say there's a, a, an incident of mass violence that occurs a generation ago. Well, there is a certain amount of projection that occurs in, you know, continuing to blame the next generation, uh, the, the successors to the perpetrator, say. We can also think about, um, you know, the way that mythologies develop. Uh, in my in one of the chapters, I use uh, very briefly the story of Slobodan Milosevic's Gussie Meston speech. So this speech on the 600th anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo, um, in 1989, where he revived this historical trauma, this um, this mythology around the Battle of Kosovo, around Serbs losing the Battle of Kosovo and losing their kingdom 600 years prior, and revives it to incorporate traumas that Serbs had experienced in the 20th century um, uh, under fascism during World War II, as well as uh, contemporary ethnic struggles, and really projects grievances from this long history of trauma onto uh, Serbia's neighbors. And um, in a lot of ways, you can read some of the tensions that that were inflamed during this period uh, in the 1990s and Balkan Wars um, as, you know, reanimating these longstanding traumas. Mm. Shall we turn then to the last case study um, that you have, or your last large case study, because you do have a number, as you said, of other examples. Um, and this is one that it seems like maybe surprised you a little bit. Could you tell us about the American example? Absolutely. So um, I didn't quite know this. Uh, the book was based on my PhD research, but this case was actually not part of my PhD. And I 
um, built this one out after uh, I, I finished the PhD. And um, the sort of surprising discovery, I'd say, and this occurred during the course of my PhD as I was researching the history of trauma, was that PTSD is such a recent phenomenon. Uh, so I grew up, my, my mom's actually a psychologist. I grew up in the U.S. during the global war on terror, um, the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. So when I was growing up, I very much felt like the PTSD diagnosis was this unquestioned, sacrosanct medical diagnosis. Uh, it was this, you know, very concrete thing. But in my research, I learned that it actually only appeared in the DSM, uh, which is kind of the the Bible for um, the psychiatric community, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it actually only appeared in that in 1980. And rather than being this sort of sacrosanct piece of medical research, this finding, I found that it actually really represents more of a compromise than anything else, a compromise between different strands of psychological research. Um, so chiefly between Freudian explanations, um, newer uh, psychological movements in the wake of the Vietnam War, and then the turn to sort of more um, empirical, scientifically driven, medically driven psychiatry that occurred in the late uh, 70s um, in the American Psychiatric Association. So when I started this project on trauma, I anticipated that PTSD was something I would need to grapple with and consider. Um, you know, it, it was the sort of paramount way of understanding individual trauma but learning about this history, I was able to see it less as this very clearly defined lens for understanding trauma and more as another point on the concept's historical development, a new way of understanding with a, a more timeless experience, This or the more timeless um, concept, which is how that people have difficulty um, uh, with or, or that experiences of mass violence have unique effects on the psyche. So this history, which I wrote in part of the PhD, it helped me explore the concept of trauma. In the final chapter, the case study on the U.S., I found a way to use that to, um, to further empirical analysis of the U.S. global war on terror. And specifically, what I found that was that even though the PTSD diagnosis uh, was first codified in 1980 in the DSM. It didn't actually enter um, political discourse until much later. And I, I found this out by analyzing a um, corpus of presidential documents. I found that really mentions to, of PTSD only began among U.S. political leaders um, in the sort of 2005 to 2008 range. And really, they didn't emerge um, to describe purely a medical diagnosis. They emerged in the context of the war on terror. They, PTSD became a way of understanding the experiences that soldiers fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, to, to a way for people to understand what they were going through. Now, it's important to remember that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, unlike, uh, say, the Vietnam War or World War II, uh, didn't occur during a draft period. And so the, the population that was fighting these wars um, was not as blended into the larger population. It was a, it was a smaller subset. And um, really, I think using PTSD to magnify the impacts of the war um, was a way of making these, these conflicts feel more proximate and more important to uh, the American public. So I'll give you a more concrete example. Um, in the 
around the time of the 2008 presidential election, so the as the cycle was beginning, the 2007 um, Democratic presidential primaries, um, the uh, the surge was going on in Iraq, which was seeing a real reduction in violence um, experienced by soldiers, a reduction in the number of deaths and casualties. But at the same time, you know, the Iraq war was a, a top, uh, was one of the most uh, prominent features of the campaign. And so to criticize the Iraq war, a lot of Democratic candidates used PTSD. They said, you know, we can't talk about a reduction in the level of casualties because there are so many people suffering, you know, potentially unquantifiable number, a number that is, you know, the number would change depending on the analysis and indeed the number of people who've experienced PTSD um, as a result of the war on terror is, is up for significant debate. But the, it was used to magnify the impact. So to say, you know, there might be a, a limited number of casualties in recent months, but we, you know, potentially tens of thousands more who, or hundreds of thousands more who suffer from PTSD. And further, we can't say that, you know, these wars are sort of uh, keeping terror over in the Middle East or in South Asia. Rather, um, you know, the experience of PTSD, which, um, you know, leads soldiers uh, or leads its victims to experience flashbacks to relive uh, incidents of violence, that means that the war is coming home. It's bringing the war home. And so it kind of became this rhetorical trope in the context of the U.S. presidential campaign to extend the consequences of the war on terror uh, beyond the the theaters in, in, in which uh, the beyond the two countries the U.S. had invaded and sort of um, magnify the impacts. Now, we can debate um, the the normative consequences of that. I, I certainly think that paying attention to soldiers' trauma is a very important thing. But at the same time, in this chapter, I do point out that um, in many ways, uh, magnifying the experiences of U.S. soldiers' trauma uh, did crowd out the, the experiences of Iraqis and Afghans. Um, uh, in many ways. And so I, I demonstrate that uh, in part of the chapter. So we can't view this this um, PTSD's impacts on this debate as purely benign. It, they, they did have normative consequences. Mm. And I think that that speaks to something you already mentioned, the idea that these cases are a proof of concept, that there is a lot of transportability um, of this framework, that there are a lot of aspects that can be explored sort of jumping off from this, um, which is a really interesting thing that you've done. You've kind of put a thing in our faces and gone, hang on a second, look at this a different way, and then think about what we can do once we have this um, new sort of lens or pair of glasses, um, which is a really interesting sort of provocation to toss in, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and to that, I would add, and this kind of brings it a little bit full, full circle. In the introduction, I talk about how you know, introducing new theory, especially this type of theory, involves a sort of stand-taking. So it's not just a, a normative stand-taking. So it's not just that um, I think that collective trauma helps explain things that we couldn't previously explain, which I think it does, but also that, you know, it's something worth looking at. There is a normative value to looking at collective trauma. And my hope is that this book demonstrates not only the value of using it as a theoretical framework for analyzing international politics, but also helps um, scholars see sort of the, um, it helps helps scholarship uh, take a new look at at history from the perspective of people who suffer 
uh, from mass violence. So hopefully that's, that's what the book will inspire. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I have already had, had the good fortune to, um, talk to some graduate students and some other scholars about this work. And so I'm hopeful that, uh, there's, there's potential to build on it. Fascinating. Um, it definitely sounds like there's a lot for people to build on, but um, at the risk of giving you one last hard question to answer, um, what might you be working on now or next? Um, that's a great question. So this, um, you know, asking all these questions about historical injustice and and uh, the historical legacy of mass violence raised a lot of questions for me about international politics, uh, tools for repair and tools for reconciliation. So more explicitly normative questions, I would say. And now I'm working on a, a project. Um, uh, so don't quote me on the title because it might be changing, but I, I call it the sort of tools of global justice program or uh, project, excuse me. So I'm, I'm sort of looking at different uh, mechanisms in the international system from uh, from international reparations to debt relief to development aid and trying to fit them into a global justice framework and see how, um, you know, these different tools address structural injustice in the international system. So it certainly needs more refinement. And I, uh, I, that's what one thing I'm working on now, writing that first chapter that narrows it down. Um, it's going to take some time to, to get this very large project under control, but uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. And I think it's, um, you know, it hopefully will provide a good next step from this first project. Well, it sounds fascinating, um, but definitely a massive thing that will probably take rather a lot of your concentration and effort. Um, So while you are off doing that and digging into your next project, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled From the Ashes of History, Collective Trauma and the Making of International Politics, just out in 2022 from Oxford University Press. Dr. Adam B. Lerner, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. And I will add, um, if anyone has gotten listen this far along and gotten here, I will add, um, and you're interested in talking to me about these ideas or discussing the book, um, my email address is adam.learner at rhul.ac.uk. And um, yeah, I love engaging with other scholars. So that would um, feel like the communication lines are open. Amazing. Thank you very much.